welcome to Pod Academy. In this podcast, Proudjit Baines talks to Professor Richard Wilkinson, one of the authors with Kate Pickett of the book The Spirit Level. At a time when the gap between rich and poor around the world is getting wider and wider, Wilkinson and Pickett argue that it's equality that is good for our health and well-being that more equal societies almost always do better for all their citizens, even the wealthier ones, than unequal societies. Perhaps it started by asking Professor Wilkinson about the focus of his research. Well, I'm an epidemiologist, which means I have spent my career looking at health in populations rather than clinically in individuals or in the laboratory. So most of the causes of ill health, you know, when you discover that a cancer is due to people working with some chemical or other, that kind of work is epidemiology. I've been particularly interested in health inequalities, the big social class differences in health, but really one of the big changes in our understanding of what drives population health in the rich developed countries is how important psychosocial things are things that make you feel stressed and anxious and so on. And it's become increasingly clear that uh, there's a whole range of problems which, like health, are worse at the bottom of the social ladder. And really what we've added to that picture is that uh, societies with bigger income differences between rich and poor do worse on all the kind of problems that have those social gradients, i.e. become more common at the bottom of the social ladder. When I say psychosocial factors affecting your levels of stress and anxiety, um, I mean all sorts of things like low social status, a difficult early childhood, um, insecurities and so on. And we know now how those affect the immune system and the cardiovascular system and so on. In the beginning of the book, as you mentioned, uh, we're learning that socioeconomic status has a huge impact, not just on developing countries and the lowest in the society, but also all across the board. You mentioned how the benefits of economic growth have reached optimum levels and any growth above that almost plateaus, whether it's health benefits or reduction in crime. Where did that come from? You can see very clearly Mm. uh, that the rapid rises in life expectancy and measures of well-being and so on uh, in the early stages of economic development and then it levels out so that whether a country is as rich as the poorer, the rich developed countries like um, uh, Portugal, Israel, Greece or whether they're as rich as the richest, twice as rich like um, USA and Norway makes no difference to life expectancy or infant mortality or, or whatever. And you see the same pattern for other measures of well-being and for happiness. And so although economic growth is what has transformed the real quality of our lives, it's done its work. And it's not only when you look cross-sectionally and see that further economic growth no longer produces additional benefits, it's also that if you look over time within any of our societies, uh, national income per head may double, and measures of well-being are flatlining. So it's certainly not rhetoric. Uh, It's good scientific evidence uh, that we're going to... As we become more aware of the problems of climate change and the costs of economic growth, we're going to have to really take that on board. And so far, most politicians are not willing to do that. 
So you feel that the uh, that kind of discussion hasn't taken hold in public domain as you would have liked? No, uh, and the reason, of course, why people go on talking about the need for economic growth is that uh, business profits go up in times of uh, growth and unemployment goes down. But, you know, we need to solve the problems of unemployment in a, a quite different way. The New Economics Foundation was suggesting we need to work, move towards a 21-hour week instead of when we have improvements in productivity, taking the benefit of that by pushing up material standards of consumption, we need instead to take the benefits of increased productivity in terms of having more leisure. We can produce the same amount in less time. So let's all have more time for friends, family, each other. And actually, before industrialization. Typically, pre-industrial societies are what they used to call leisure preference society. So when um, standard of living moved up, people took the benefit of that in terms of more leisure. We've got to go back to that. And so rather than economic growth, let's just have more time for each other. Uh, you recently mentioned at the Occupy Economics talk um, that people are taking the view that economic growth is the way to develop, the way to prosperity for everyone. Um, and you mentioned uh, relative and absolute poverty in particular and how economic growth uh, lifts people out of absolute poverty. You can look at a whole range of health and social problems, uh, levels of violence, teenage births, obesity, drug abuse, mental health, physical health in terms of life expectancy. And rich countries, if they get richer still, it makes no difference to those things. Even measures of child well-being are not helped if, a, if one of our rich countries gets twice as rich. What matters now is the scale of the income differences between us how much inequality there is. And although I say economic growth now makes no difference in the rich countries to our levels of life expectancy, life expectancy within our countries is extraordinarily closely related to income or any measure of social status. That is because we are dealing with relativities. It's where you are in society uh, and how big the gaps are between us that really matters. And all those kinds of problems get much worse in more unequal societies. Some may argue that equalising that gap would make things difficult. It would uh, drag everyone back. Well, there's absolutely no evidence of that. You look at levels of inequality, and any, if you are interested in economic growth, uh, greater inequality seems to hamper growth, actually. There have been recent reports, I can't remember from the, whether from the IMF or the World Bank, showing that more unequal countries have um, bigger booms and slumps and uh, less sustained periods of growth. But actually, as I've said, growth is not what we want. And I said that economic growth in the past is what has transformed the real quality of our lives. But it's really important to remember it's finished its work. It no longer carries the very important benefits it used to carry. What we have to do now to improve the real quality of our lives is to reduce the income differences between us. I think many people are aware of the sort of contrast between the material success of our societies and their many social failings. You know, measures of depression and so on are going up. 
um, uh, measures of mental illness going up. There's a, a number of problems. I, I mean, if you look at I mean, the levels of self-harm amongst teenage girls at school are appalling. And there are a whole range of problems like that that people really fail to understand at all what's going on. Mm. Um, and yet, if you look at inequality, you find that more unequal countries like the United States, Britain, Portugal, some of these problems we have ten times as much of them as the more equal societies like uh, the Scandinavian countries or Japan. The differences are simply huge. I mean, on the proportion of the population in prison, in some studies, the levels of violence, teenage births, tenfold differences in some of those outcomes. If you look at levels of mental illness or infant mortality, perhaps two or threefold differences. But we're not talking about 10% more of a problem or 20% more. We're talking about two or three, anything from two or three times as much of any of these problems as ten times to ten times as much. And that is a really major um, reflection of what inequality does to the quality of people's lives. So you kind of touched on this material success. And I quote from the book, uh, second-rate goods are assumed to reflect second-rate people. Yes, one of the things that seems to happen in more unequal societies is there's more uh, status competition, more insecurity. You know, some people are worth, seem hugely valuable and important, and other people uh, apparently almost worthless failures. Then where you come, uh, where people think you come, seems very important. Uh, I think we all get a lot more twitchy about that. So has consumerism diffused our identification of our real place in society? Are we buying into first-rate brands? Uh, are they alleviating our social anxiety? A lot of studies show that people who are more into consumerism and shopping and so on perhaps have particular insecurities uh, that actually these... Uh, uh, buying things for yourself, people talk about it as retail therapy, but it doesn't actually help much. But it is an insecurity about how you're seen and judged. We talk about consumerism as if it was a reflection of a basic acquisitive uh, human nature, but it isn't. It's how we're trying to represent ourselves to other people. We want to be seen in a good light. We want to be seen as successful as part of the society. I remember a man uh, who was unemployed and spent hundreds of pounds he hadn't really got on a mobile phone. Uh, and he said the girls wouldn't talk to him uh, if he didn't have the right stuff. And it, it's why these status differences hurt, is that they are seen as a measure of ability. We think of the people at the top as hugely capable and the ones at the bottom as, as failures. We thought the bankers were brilliant until the crash. And it's because we read off ability from social status that they hurt so much. Okay. But we do that less in a more equal society. We're more likely to take each other, to, if you like, at face value. Okay. So do you think the bankers' um, identity has, has been rebranded uh, as a result of the financial crash? Are they still, do you think, in your eyes, seen as a successful by society? Are they successful? Well, you know, there's a lot of anger about the bankers and uh, people are suddenly astonished to learn of the um, levels of income they were giving themselves. I think when people heard of it occasionally before the crash, they thought that somehow the, the bankers earned these sums. 
they don't. They just give it to themselves despite the appalling mistakes they were made, making and risks they were running. Risks, risk-taking that was probably increased in order to get these uh, big bonuses and so on. Following on that, from that per- perception, uh, we feel that kind of income and um, being able to flash your cash is kind of an indication of your um, social standing. Um, and we're finding that more and more, at least since the 60s and 70s, social mobility in the UK has decreased uh, exponentially and is kind of really, really stagnant. Do you feel that um, that's the case and do you think it's ever likely to change? There are good studies of uh, levels of social mobility in different countries and it, the evidence is pretty clear now that m- societies with bigger income differences between rich and poor have lower social mobility. USA, as one of the most unequal countries, has the lowest social mobility. Um, we took that relationship seriously even when we had rather little data because we knew that Britain and the States, while they became more unequal, in those periods, social mobility had slowed. But, you know, whether you regard bigger income differences as meaning that the social ladder is steeper or the rungs on the ladder further apart, it's harder to get up and down. And as we sometimes like to to joke, uh, if Americans really want to live the American dream rather than just dream it, they should go to a country like Denmark, where there's a much bigger chance of getting from uh, the bottom to the top. USA uh, with the lowest social mobility. Do you feel that public expenditure in education has a huge impact on social mobility? Or um, it makes a difference, but it can, it can work either way around. You can have an education system that uh, cements social differentiation, and I think that's probably what we've got in this country with uh, the private schools. I was uh, astonished to see that you know, the new Archbishop of Canterbury is an Etonian like so much of the uh, Conservative cabinet. And it's bizarre that this whole sliced top layer of the population have been to the same school. And in some of the more unequal countries, the uh, private education hardly exists. And where it does, it's not regarded as higher status. It's regarded as something that people with some peculiar ideology uh, want to do for some strange social or religious reason, but is not regarded as higher status. So I think that we shouldn't regard just pouring money into education necessarily as the route, but we must change the structure of the educational system and get rid of or enormously reduce the, the private sector. I have spent most of my time trying to understand these social gradients in, in health and other social problems, uh, and then trying to understand why they all become so much more common in in more unequal societies. Incidentally, one thing I haven't said is that in more unequal societies, these problems are not just more common amongst the poor. They're more common amongst all of us. And so, you know, if, if you take any individual, given their level of education and income and their position in the job hierarchy, if that same person lived in a more equal society they'd probably live a wee bit longer. Their kids would do likely, likely to do a bit better at school in terms of these international maths and literacy scores. You'd be less likely to become a victim of violence and your kids, again, would be less likely to become teenage pers- parents or get involved in drugs. So in that sense, 
we all do better in a more equal society. The, the effect of inequality is greatest at the bottom, uh, but even uh, far up the social scale, you do better in a more equal society. And so this is really about the quality of life for the vast majority of society. The way we should be improving the quality of life now is not by pushing up material standards in this sort of status competition consumerist fashion. We've got to the end of what we can achieve as a society like that. What we must now do is improve the quality of the social environment. And the really exciting thing is that we can improve the social environment by reducing the scale of income differences between us. That's really important. Sure. So how do we get that message across? And what is really impeding that kind of understanding amongst the decision makers, the policy makers, the lawmakers, past those laws that allow inequality in incomes and living standards to close that gap? What is, what is stopping that? Well, I should say there are quite different ways of becoming a more equal society. Some do it through redistribution, taxes and benefits and so on. But others start off with smaller income differences before taxes and do much less redistribution. I think we probably have to use both methods. I have absolutely no doubt we've got to tackle the problem of tax evasion, uh, the tax havens and so on, both by companies and rich individuals. I mean, it's just appalling that some big companies pay virtually no tax and many rich individuals pay less tax than uh, much poorer people. I mean, a smaller proportion of their income in tax than much poorer people. Uh, we used to think of income tax as being progressive um, and we must reinstate that. Uh, but the problem with relying on redistribution uh, is twofold. One is that people feel it's their money being taken away from them by this nasty government, and the other is that an incoming, a new incoming government can undo at a stroke of a pen any changes, any progressive changes that have been made. So we have to get greater equality more deeply rooted in our society. And I think that the, you know, the bonus culture, um, the top incomes that have run away from us, why we've become more unequal societies over the last few decades is because the rich have run away from the rest of us rather than because the poor have fallen further behind. The reason why the top incomes have taken off is people at the top felt they could do whatever they liked. Uh, they didn't feel they had to be accountable to anyone. We must answer that by making them accountable whether it's by having employee representatives on the board of companies or whether it's by having more employee-owned companies, more mutuals, more friendly societies, more cooperatives, all those kinds of more democratic companies have small income differences between uh, top and bottom. You know, in the FTSE 100 companies, the typical uh, ratio of incomes at the top to the bottom is 300 to 1. Whereas in um, the public sector, it's 10, 15, sometimes 20 to 1. Much, much smaller. And in the more democratic companies, it's more like the public sector. And the real, if you like, the elephant in the living room are these huge undemocratic centres of power in multinationals, which often used extraordinarily um, antisocially, and think of the response of the tobacco companies to finding it harder to sell cigarettes, declining um, sales in the rich countries as people became 
more aware of the dangers of smoking. They open up the markets in the third world, knowing they are going to kill millions. And we've had that kind of thing time and time again. You know, some the dangers of some chemical is, is uh, discovered, research begins to point the finger at it. And of course, uh, whatever company is being affected fights it tooth and claw, uh, simply to defend its profits. And we must get rid of that kind of thing. And actually, the you know the the more democratic companies tend to do better in ethical terms and in and in, in environmental terms. And you know, even the cooperative bank, for instance, gets awards for um, environmental and ethical things. Um, and it's partly that employees are not absolved from responsibility for what their companies are doing in the way. You know, it's if you're working for a multinational, it's not your business to think of the morality of what's going on. KPMG released a report um, earlier this year saying that employees are no longer looking for just a job that gives a healthy paycheck, but also um, provides social meaning to their life. So what you're suggesting is having more ethical businesses, more empathetic businesses, perhaps. Well, they must be more democratic in terms of their constitution. I mean, things change when management become responsible for the, to the body of employees. Mm -hmm. And it's not only that the benefits in terms of smaller pay differences, studies are beginning to show you get uh, better productivity um, in more democratic structures. People, I was going to do some research on employee-owned companies, employee-owned and con controlled companies, and... Uh, I visited a couple that had been through employee buyouts and people say it turns a company from being a piece of property into a community. And of course we've lost community in residential areas. People don't know their neighbours, yet it's at work that we are most involved in each other, with each other and yet at work we're most divided by hierarchy with line management and pay differences and so on. We must change that. So what of this idea of big society, uh, citing some research mentioned in, in spirit level, uh, epidemiologist Ikuro Kawachi from the Harvard School of Public Health found people, part of uh, voluntary organisations, have lower death rates. Well, several things so, there. One is that more equal societies are more cohesive. Not only is community life stronger, but people trust each other more and people are more involved in voluntary associations and so on. If you want a big society, the most effective way of producing it is reducing the divisive income differences. I mean, people have known for centuries that inequality is divisive and socially corrosive, and in a way that's all the data shows us. What we also know now is that more cohesive societies are uh, healthier societies, it looks as if at a very fundamental level we as human beings need that social contact and so on. Uh, I sometimes think as we become aware of the importance of early childhood, of uh, social status um, and friendship, how important those are to health, that just as the you know early studies showed that babies need more than just food putting into them to gain weight. They need that loving interaction, the eye contact, the handling um, from a parent. In a way, what the epidemiology is telling us about these psychosocial influences on health is about the social needs of adults. 
you know, friendship is one of the most powerful influences on health. It's a study which reviewed or combined data from 150 studies of friendship and health showed that uh, friendship was as important or slightly more important than whether or not you smoke to survival over a follow-up period. And basically, the picture, you know, why social status, uh, friendship and early childhood are important psychosocially uh, influencing health and all sorts of other outcomes is because the, the insecurities you can have from a difficult early childhood, anxieties, feeling you're not valued and so on, are rather like the insecurities and feeling you're not valued that you can get from low social status. And friendship fits into that pattern because if you've got friends, they're people who value you. Uh, whereas if you if you feel people exclude you, they don't invite you to things, they choose not to sit next to you, we all know those how those insecurities come flooding in. You know, maybe I'm boring, unattractive, socially gauche, all that kind of thing. And so basically those major groups of risk factors, low social status, lack of social contacts and difficult early childhood, are telling us about the same underlying problem of negotiating relationships with others. And you see, we all get more twitchy about those issues in a more unequal society because instead of just being accepted as a fellow human being, we start thinking, you know, is she worth anything in terms of uh, status and um, where where people fit in? And so I think that in more unequal societies, the problems of low so self-esteem, social anxieties, uh, feeling that um, social contact is a bit of an ordeal, um, all those problems increase. But so also, I mean, in, if you like, those things that people going under faced with that, those kinds of worries about how they're seen and judged. But there's another end of it where people respond to that, what, what psychologists call a social valuative threat, by saying, uh, by becoming more narcissistic. They talk themselves up. I'm really good at this, that and the other. Um, and one of the costs of greater inequality is people can no longer afford to be modest about their achievements and abilities. You have to flaunt them, often as a cover for great insecurity. So it's not only that all those problems I mentioned, like violence and drugs and ill health getting worse in more unequal societies, it's also these worries about how we're seen and judged. And those are really important things that affect our intimate lives. So essentially, American philosophy of, you know, you're fantastic and you can achieve anything, no matter what your social um, background, no matter where you kind of started off in life, whether your parents were involved in your education or whether there were high crime rates in your community, you can rise above that, you can step out of that. Is that something that is kind of conducive towards more social mobility or does it hinder it? Well, what people often being challenged to rise above is the disadvantages of inequality. And so you set up the hurdles and you just tell people to jump. The damage done by inequality in terms of lower social mobility, lower maths and literacy scores, more drug problems and so on, more people in prison, you know, it's not a good society. No.
and it becomes a rarity when people do rise above it rather than it being the yes. norm. Yeah. So it becomes stuff. more difficult. Okay, well, thank you for such an enlightening talk. Thank you very much. Thank you.